to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of Matthew, chapter 19, verse 16, as we follow along with today's lesson. Behold, one came and said unto him, Good Master, What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why do you call me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. This man had a consciousness that life must be more than what he had yet experienced. Aware of an emptiness. There was that lack of fulfillment. He saw in Jesus a quality of life that was higher. He desired it. And he was looking for some good thing that he might do in order to earn this extraordinary life, eternal life, this age-abiding life. It's interesting how that so many people are endeavoring by good works to be saved. But by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God and not of works, lest any man should boast. And yet there are always those who are endeavoring by their good works to be acceptable by God. But in reality, our good works are like filthy rags in God's sight. And by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. And though throughout the Bible the justification by faith is Declared, proclaimed, illustrated, emphasized. It seems like man is just an inveterate religionist who feels that by good works and good efforts he can be accepted by God. All of the religious systems of man have an emphasis upon the good works and proscribed works for those that would enter into the kingdom of heaven. But in Christianity, it's not by works of righteousness that we have done. And our works avail nothing as far as our salvation is concerned. 
And thus he was making the common mistake that so many people make, feeling that somehow he could earn his salvation by some good work. What good thing shall I do that I might have eternal life? Now, I think that the reason why we are so attracted by good works is we love to boast. And if we could be saved by good works, then think of how we could boast about that. If, if God would say, well, you've got to read so many chapters and you've got to pray so many hours and you've got to lead so many people to Jesus and you got to do And if we could keep all of this list, and then we could say, hey, look, I've got gold stars all the way, you know. <laughs> and, and there is that tendency to glory in our flesh, or desire to glory in our flesh. And, and so this man is just so typical. Now, it is interesting that the Jews today have a whole system of righteousness by works. And the most holy day of the religious calendar, Yom Kippur, the day when in the past the priests would go into the Holy of Holies to bring the blood of the goat to atone for the sins of the nation, rather than looking to the sacrifice for the covering of their sins, Yom Kippur today is a day of reflection you sit and you think of all of your evil works this past year, and then over against them you weigh all of your good deeds of the past year. And you sort of put them in the scale balances, and hopefully your good deeds will overbalance your evil. And thus you can feel confident another year, you know, but that's why the week before Yom Kippur, they're all going around helping little ladies across the street and, <laughs> and trying to, you know, build up points on the positive side so that when they have to stop and reflect, uh, you know, they've got the credit there of I've done so many things. Here he is caught up in the religion. What good things shall I do? Good master. But Jesus said, why do you call me good? There is none good but one, and that is God. Jesus is saying one of two things. He is saying, I am no good. Or he is saying, I am God. And he's trying to quicken this man's conscience. The reason why you called me good is that you recognize something in me, something that is true. I am God. Why did you call me good? There's none good but one, and that's God. You call me good because I am God. That's what you see in me. That divine life is that which you are desiring. It's that which you see that I have that brought you to me with the question. And he's trying to, to just draw him and to lead him with his question into a understanding that was sort of there subconsciously, but
but he wanted him to really comprehend the truth. What you see is God. And then Jesus said, but if you would enter into life, keep the commandments. And he saith unto him, which? Now, that's sort of a peculiar question because if Jesus would say keep the commandments, I would think all of them. But he's wanting a, he's wanting a definition here, which? He, <laughs> and so Jesus gave to him the commandments from the second table of the law, the commandments that deal with man's relationship with his fellow man. The first table of the law dealt with man's relationship with God. Jesus didn't mention that here. And that to me is very interesting because the first table of the law is really basic to and necessary for the second table of the law. You cannot have a right relationship with your fellow men until you have a right relationship with God. The right relationship with God precedes the right relationship with your fellow man. And so why Jesus would just jump to the second table of the law is an interesting uh, enigma in my own mind. Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Second table of the law. The young man said unto him, All of these things have I kept from my youth up. I've done all of this. What lack I yet? I've done this, but I'm still not satisfied. I still haven't achieved or attained. I'm still feeling this need for something more. I'm not fulfilled. What do I lack yet? Now, here's an interesting problem. The last of these commands that Jesus gave to him is, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. And we read that he was very rich. He had great possessions. It would seem if he loved his neighbor as himself, he would have been helping some of his unfortunate neighbors who didn't have enough. Wouldn't you think? And yet he said, oh, I've done all of this from my youth up. Well, we oftentimes, I think, have a view of ourselves that differs from God's view of us. And many times we're prone to overlook our flaws and our faults. We've justified ourselves. We can give good reasons for why we reacted as we did and why we continue to react that way. But are they valid in the eyes of God? Jesus said unto him, If you would be perfect, then go and sell what you have and give to the poor, 
and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. Now he's getting to the first table of the law. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And rather than just give him that commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Had Jesus said that, he said, well, I don't have any other gods, no doubt. He would have said that. But Jesus points out that he does have a god. It is his possessions. They are mastering his life. Riches are not wrong in and of themselves. But if your riches master your life, if you are ruled by your riches, if they are the most important thing to you, if they have precedent over your relationship with God, then they are wrong. There were many people in the Bible that God blessed with great riches. It isn't sinful to have riches. It is, it is wrong when riches are above God in your life. And that was the case with this young man. His riches were the thing that, were standing, that was standing in the way of his following Jesus Christ. You see... The real essence of, of the word of Jesus to him was, follow me. And, and that's, if you want an eternal life, follow Jesus. That, that's, that's the essence. That's the heart of it. You want eternal life? Follow Jesus. This go and sell what you have and give to the poor is not universally applicable. If Jesus were talking to you tonight, it may be that he had put his finger on something entirely different in your life. That which is holding you back from following him completely. That which has captured your heart and that which has become sort of the master passion in your life. That which is ahead of God and keeps you from following Jesus. That's the thing that he would finger in your life tonight. With this young man, it was riches that was standing in the way, but <laughs> that doesn't really affect many of us. But there are other things that can stand in the way of your following Jesus, that hinder your following him. And so Jesus put the finger on the issue in his life that was keeping him from following the Lord. The promise is you will have treasure in heaven. Come and follow me. That's the heart of the message. I am God. You want life? You want this divine life? This age-abiding life? Follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. We are told that he was a ruler by Luke. We are told here that he was a young man, verse 20, and again in verse 22, and we're told that he had great possessions. And so it's called the story of the rich 
young ruler. Notice, he had what most of us feel, if I just had that, man, I would be fully satisfied. As, as the old saying goes, too soon old, too late smart. And youth, if I was only young again and knew what I knew now, or I knew what I know now, if I only had enough riches, I would be satisfied, I would be happy, I would be content. But this fellow had it all. He had the riches. He was moral. When Jesus flashed on him these, these commandments, he said, I've done all of those from the time I was a youth. I've kept these. He was moral. He was wealthy. He was young. But yet, he was aware of a lack. There was still something unfulfilled. He lacked this life this eternal life. Then Jesus said to his disciples as this young fellow was walking away, head down, sorrowful. He came with all kinds of expectations and hopes, but he goes away sorry. You see, when the Lord puts his finger on the issue in your life that's holding you back from following him, then is when that choice must be made. Do I deny myself? Do I bring these things to the cross that I might follow Jesus? Or do I go away and walk my own path apart from him? Decision time. When the Spirit of God speaks to your heart and shows you those things that are hindering your walk with Jesus those things that are keeping you from following him completely. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say unto you, that a rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. Another gospel said how hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. What does Jesus say here? Easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. There are those who will say, well, at the great gates of the city, there was always a small little gate so that at night when the gates of the city were barred and someone would come and need entrance into the city, they could get down and squeeze through this little subgate, which was called the eye of the needle. There are those, and you can read commentaries, that will tell you that to get the camel through that little subgate, they had to pull on the thing and push on the thing, and man, it just took all kinds of effort to get the camel through. 
There are those that would like to think that. They are like the rich young ruler who are looking for some good work that they can do to be saved. And they'd like to think that if you work hard enough, push hard enough, pull hard enough, you can make it. But Jesus eliminated all of that when he said, the disciples, when he said that, when they heard that, they were amazed. And they said, who then can be saved? And Jesus said, with man it is impossible. Underline that. With man, it is impossible. There is not a single work that you can do or combination of works that you can do to save yourself. Salvation is beyond man's capacity. With man, it is impossible. By pulling and pushing and exerting a lot of effort, you'll never make it. By being honest and moral and sincere, you'll never make it. By being religious, you'll never make it. With man, it is impossible. Man cannot save himself with his greatest efforts. Salvation is of the Lord. And with God, it's even possible to save you. <laughs> with God, all things are possible. And I, I rest on that. Then Peter answered. Here we are. Blessed Peter. Love this guy. <laughs> he said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed you. Now, this fellow was called upon to go sell, give to the poor, come and follow me. You'll have treasure in heaven. That was the promise. Peter said, Lord, we've forsaken everything. We've, you know, we've left it all and followed you. What are we going to have? <laughs> and Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that you which have followed me in the recreation, literally in the Greek, the making new, in, in this new order that I am bringing, in this new creation, new order, when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, you also shall sit upon the twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. What shall you have? When we bring in the new order, God's divine order, then you will sit with me as I sit upon the throne of his glory, you will sit upon 12 thrones and judging the 12 tribes. And everyone that hath forsaken houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands, for my name's sake, if your Receiving Jesus Christ has cost you your earthly relationships. In those days, for those Jews, many times it was at the price of earthly relationships. 
and even to the present day in Orthodox Jewry, if a son or a daughter receive Jesus Christ, they'll be disowned by the family. They will even, in extreme cases, have funeral services for them and don't even recognize that they live anymore. They treat them as though they were dead. There is a tradition of the early church that says that Paul actually had to give up his wife for the gospel's sake. Some church, early church traditions say that Paul was married and had two sons. To be a member of the Sanhedrin, which Paul was, marriage was required. In fact, they taught that if you weren't married by the time you were 20 years old, that you were disobeying the law of God. And the only excuse not to be married by the time you were 20 is if you were studying the law. But you should be married by the time you were 20 years old and that you should have children because the law of God was to replenish the earth. But the early traditions say that Paul had to actually give up his wife for the cause of Christ. Now this, this is interesting going back to what Jesus had said earlier concerning divorce. And now he is saying, if you gave up a wife. So this is not for adultery's sake. This is just for the kingdom of God's sake. Because the breach between you and your wife was created because of your faith in Christ and her lack of faith. Paul seems to uh, confirm this in Corinthians when he says, if an unbelieving wife is not willing to uh, or when an unbelieving husband is not willing to remain with a believing wife, let him depart. She is not under bondage in such cases. And so there are times when the faith in Jesus Christ, determining to follow Jesus Christ, does cost you your family. And no one has forsaken houses or homes or brothers or sisters or fathers or mother or wife or children, or lands, for my name's sake, if you do this, you shall receive a hundredfold and inherit everlasting life. God will not be a debtor to man. You can't give up anything but what God doesn't replace it a hundredfold. He'll not be a debtor to you. And if for the kingdom of God's sake you give up anything, you can be sure that God will make it back to you over and over again, a hundredfold. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. Many of the important people of the earth will be last. Those that have first prominence today and many of those that are last will be first. The new order established by Jesus. Let's turn to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 21. Fascinating chapter. And when they drew near to Jerusalem, were come to Bethphage, unto the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, 
go into the village over against you, and there you will find a donkey that is tied and a colt with her. Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man says anything to you, you shall say, well, the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Now all of this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophets, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting on a donkey and a colt, the foal of the donkey. So here again, Jesus, I believe, is showing his uh, miraculous knowledge and understanding of things. You remember back in the beginning of his ministry when Philip came to Nathanael and told him that he had found the Messiah. And he brought, he said, is Jesus of Nazareth. He said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? He said, well, come and see. So when Nathanael came to Jesus, Jesus said to him, behold, an Israelite, in whom there is no guile. Nathaniel said, how do you know me? And he said, well, when you were sitting under the fig tree, when Philip saw you, or called you, I saw you. He said, oh, you are the Messiah. She said, you believe just because I said I saw you. Wait around, fellow, you'll see a lot more. <laughs> but uh, this knowledge that Jesus had exercising this divine knowledge. As he tells the disciple the exact corner upon which they will find this donkey tied uh, with its colt, told them what the owners would say, told them how to respond, and, and he said he'll let them come. And so they went as, as he had commanded, and they found, as he had said, and uh, the, they brought the donkey and the little colt to Jesus. And thus, as Matthew points out, an important prophecy was fulfilled, found in Zechariah chapter 9, where he said, Rejoice, ye daughters of Jerusalem, shout for joy. For your king cometh unto thee, but he is lowly. He is sitting on a donkey. And so, not only was that prophecy fulfilled, but according to the prophecy of Daniel, from the time the commandment would go forth to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of the Messiah, the prince, would be seven sevens and 62 sevens, or 483 years. The commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given to Nehemiah by Artaxerxes in 445 B.C. 483 years later corresponds to this time now. Sir Robert Anderson in his book, The Coming Prince, uh, does a masterful job in research 
showing that the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem actually was given on March the 14th, 445 B.C. And because Daniel was prophesying during the Babylonian era and they were using the Babylonian calendar of 360 days, he transposed the 483 years of years of 360-day years. And uh, it gives you 173,000 or 270,280 uh, days. And uh, so Jesus made his triumphant entry on the uh, 6th of April, according to the Jewish calendar, in 32 AD, and it works out exactly mathematically to the day. It is interesting that the psalm that was declaring the coming of the Messiah, also Psalm 118, uh, in this 118th psalm, where it says, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That psalm, that section of the psalm concerning the Messiah begins with, this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. And then it goes on to Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So three important prophecies of the Old Testament. The king is coming, he is lowly riding on a donkey. He will come 173,880 days after the commandment to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. And they will be shouting, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the king. And then, of course, in that 118th Psalm, it said, but the stone would be refused by the builders. And so the rejection of Jesus, according to Psalm 118. It is interesting that when Jesus made this entry into Jerusalem, that as he looked at the city, he wept over it. And Luke's gospel tells us that he cried and he said, O Jerusalem, if you had only known the things that belong to your peace in this thy day, special day. This is the day the Lord has made. If you only knew it in this thy day, but it's hid from your eyes. And then he predicted the judgment and the destruction of Jerusalem that would take place by the Roman army uh, in 40 years. And it, of course, did happen just as Jesus predicted within the 40-year period. So, Thus the prophecies were fulfilled. This is a momentous day in the history of man, really. It's the day that Israel had looked forward to from the beginning. The day of God's promise. The day of salvation. The day the king would come. The promised Messiah. And they had been looking forward to this day. How tragic that when the day came, they missed it. The prophet Isaiah 
I mean, Zechariah said, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, behold, the king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the disciples went, and they did as Jesus commanded them. And they brought the donkey and the colt, and they put on them their clothes, and they set him thereon. And a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and put them in the path. And the multitudes that went before and followed cried, saying, Hosanna, or save now, to the Son of David. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he was come into Jerusalem, all of the city was moved, saying, Who is this? The word translated moved there is the same Greek word from which we get our English word seismic, earthquake. (laughs) The whole place was moved. It was shaken. They said, who is this? And the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. The other gospels tell us how that The Pharisees, when they heard them shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, recognizing that that was prophesied of the Messiah, they said, Lord, quiet your disciples, that's blasphemous. And Jesus answered, you remember, I tell you that if they would hold their peace, these stones immediately would cry out. So Jesus went into the temple of God. And according to Mark's gospel, this was the next day. Uh, There seems to be a a little bit of confusion here because Matthew puts the cursing of the fig tree on the uh, morning as he returned to the city. Uh, Mark puts the cursing of the fig tree together with the going then into the temple and cleansing it. So uh, just what the exact sequence is, we don't know. Uh, But Jesus went into the temple, and this could have been on the following day uh, when he cursed the fig tree. Uh, That's the order that Mark has it. If it was all perfectly in line, you'd say, oh, they were in collusion. They all got together and they planned it all out. Look how perfectly it is. Uh, The very fact that it isn't uh, in the same order exactly shows that they weren't copying each other, nor did they get together in collusion on the story. They are each of them bearing witness to the story as they recalled it and as they saw it and as they remembered it. So Jesus went into the temple of God and he cast out all of them that sold and bought in the temple. He overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. Now, as we mentioned this morning, there was quite a profitable little business going on in the temple precincts. They had these concessions. 
where they sold certified animals, doves, and all for sacrifice. When you brought a sacrifice to the temple to offer to God, the priest would examine the sacrifice to make certain there were no flaws in the sacrifice. You couldn't offer to God anything that was defective in any way. God didn't want defective sacrifices. Now, we remember a period in their history where they were bringing roadkill, and God said, I don't want it. <laughs> and uh, so uh, the, the sacrifice had to be perfect. So the priests would examine the sacrifices that were brought, and if they were not purchased with the little certificate, certified, you know, banded, uh, this has been approved by the rabbis and all, uh, they would, for the most part, just reject them. They would search and they would then point out some flaw and say, you know, you can't offer this to God. You'll have to go out there and buy uh, one of the doves out there in these concessions. You could buy a dove out on the street for just a few cents. But from these concessions, they were 12, 15, 20 bucks. So they were gouging the people who were wanting to worship God, wanting to offer a sacrifice to God. They were gouging them, overcharging them horrendously. It was a racket. The temple would not accept in the offering Roman coinage. They declared it was unclean. If you wanted to give to God, you would have to give the temple shekel. And the only place you could get the temple shekel was at the money changer there within the temple precincts. And again, they would charge an exorbitant rate of exchange. For a dollar in Roman coinage, you get about 50 cents worth of the temple shekel. And, and they were ripping the people off. It made Jesus angry to see them taking advantage of people who were desiring to serve the Lord and profiteering off of that desire to worship God. It angered Jesus. Anytime a person seeks to profit off of the desire of people to worship God, you can be sure that it makes him upset. It angers him. They were taking that which really should have been God's. People were desiring to offer to God, but they were profiting off of it. Now, according to the uh, Josephus, the booths, these concessions, were owned by the family of the high priest. And so it, it was an internal kind of a thing. They had become extremely wealthy by taking advantage of the people and their spiritual desire to know and worship God.
So Jesus went into the temple of God and he cast out all of them that were selling and buying in the temple and he overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that were selling the doves. And he said unto them, It is written, My house shall be called the house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And then we see something extremely beautiful. In the midst of these scattered tables, in the midst of the disarray, as Jesus had driven out the animals that they had and all and overturned the tables, we read, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Oh, this is what the temple was to be about. This is what God desired, that people could come into the temple, not be ripped off, but could be touched by God and healed by God. And and we see Jesus really, this is the purpose. You've made my father's house a a den of thieves. And as he drove them out, then the, the purpose of the temple was fulfilled as the blind and the lame came and he healed them there in the temple. I, I love the contrast there. I, it just thrills me. And when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, that is the healing of the, there probably was something in their heart that, that I think was drawn to that. And yet greed and avarice had so taken control uh, there were probably mixed emotions. They, they saw the wonderful things that he did. And as he was there, the children were calling out to him and saying, Hosanna to the son of David, salvation to the son of David, the little children. And, and what a beautiful scene that must have been. Here is the Messiah. He's standing in his temple. He said, The scriptures said, it is written, my house. The Messiah is now in his house. They've turned it into a den of thieves, but he has driven them out. And now he is in the house of God. They're fulfilling the purposes in healing those that were in need. And the little children saying, Hosanna to the son of David, you know, salvation, save now. But when they saw this, that is, the chief priests and scribes, they were sore displeased. They were angry. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said unto them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of babes and sucklings? Thou hast perfected praise. Yes, I hear them. Haven't you read the scripture? Out of the mouth of babes and sucklings, God has perfected praise. And he left them and went out of the city into Bethany, and he lodged there. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he was hungry. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it, and found nothing thereon but leaves only. And he said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee hence 
forward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. Now, there are some who find fault with Jesus uh, for cursing this fig tree because it had no fruit. It had leaves, but no fruit. Now, it is interesting that with a fig tree, they have what they call the first ripe figs, and they actually appear before the leaves. I have a fig tree in my backyard, and it is just now breaking out with leaves. But I have a a great fig tree in that it does have an abundance of what they call the first ripe figs, and really they are better than uh, the, the later figs. The first ripe figs become fully ripe in June. Uh, then you don't get your second crop uh, until around August or so. But my tree is full of first ripe figs. It, some of them are quite large at the time. And it is interesting that the time of year that Jesus came to the fig tree is coincident with the time of year right now. In fact, on the uh, Julian or Gregorian the calendar, the Sunday the 10th was the, of April was the Sunday that Jesus made his triumphant entry. And uh, so uh, it corresponds exactly. Today's Sunday, April the 10th. And though on the Jewish calendar it was April I mean, it was April 6th on the Julian calendar, but it was April 10th on the Jewish calendar, uh, which means that he was uh, crucified on the 14th, the day of Passover. So uh, it's it's interesting that uh, my fig tree has figs, and though they are not ripe, they would be edible for someone who was really hungry. And... If there are no figs on it, the leaves are already there, it means it's not bearing fruit. The figs should be there if it is a fruit-bearing tree. Now, the whole issue, as far as God is concerned, is that we bear fruit. That's the purpose of bearing fruit. And the fig tree is symbolic through the Scripture of the nation of Israel. And the cursing of the barren fig tree that is not bearing fruit is a symbolic action as much as anything else. Here is Israel not bearing fruit. And and they're to be cursed. They're to wither and die. And so it was actually a a picture of what was going to happen to the nation of Israel that was not bringing forth fruit. Here is the master coming to the tree desiring fruit. Hungry for fruit. He finds none. He doesn't find it in the nation of Israel. And and the rest of the chapter is is going to deal with the subject of the desire for fruit. And how that the nation that doesn't bring forth fruit will be rejected. And the vineyard will be given to a nation that will bring forth fruit. So the whole part of this chapter is tied together together. The the fig tree that Jesus said, let no man. They had leaves. Interesting. It's like a lot of people. There's a lot of show, but there's no fruit. You know, the leaves, there's the appearance 
of life, but there's no fruit. Leaves only. And so <laughs> presently, right while they were watching, the fig tree just withered. Branches lit over and things just died. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled. And they said, look how that thing just withered away, you know. They marveled at the instant withering of the tree as Jesus pronounced upon it that curse. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If you have faith and doubt not, you shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, but also if you say unto this mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. We'll return with more of our in-depth study in the book of Matthew in our next broadcast. As Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on bearing fruit, and we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order Matthew 21 through 22 when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of The Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of The Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, we thank you for your word. Plant it now in our heart as seed. May it produce in us the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we ask your blessing now. Water it. Cultivate it in our hearts. Until it springs forth into fruit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. As we look back over the roadmap of our lives, we often see the value of troubled times, personal trials, and even the experiences of pain or the death of a loved one. These are the building blocks that establish God's plan for us. It is with great honor that I'm pleased to introduce Pastor Chuck Smith's autobiography entitled, A Memoir of Grace. You're invited to pull up a chair and listen as Pastor Chuck shares his personal story of how God's grace prepared him for life's purposes. Perhaps, as you're reading this story, you'll be prompted to evaluate your own past, your present situation, and that which is yet to happen, and realize that it all plays a part in establishing God's plan for you. See God's grace at work in your own life when you order a personal copy of A Memoir of Grace by Pastor Chuck. 
God called me into the ministry and how God has just led us step by step. For more information on how to order your copy, visit us online at thewordfortoday.org or call toll-free at 1-800-272-WORD.